I think you should build a career in data science. Welcome to Build a Career in Data Science. I'm your host, Jacqueline Olis. And I'm also your host, Emily Robinson. This podcast is a data download into all the non-technical knowledge and skills you need to succeed in a data science career. From getting into the field to becoming a seasoned expert, we're covering it here. In season one of the podcast, we'll be discussing a different chapter of our book, also called Build a Career in Data Science, each week. You can buy the book at bestbook.cool and get 40% off with the code BUILDBOOK40%. That's, if I can pronounce it correctly, BUILDBOOK40%. But you don't have to let not having the book stop you. You'll get just as much enjoyment out of the podcast without it. But if you really do like the podcast, you should definitely buy the book. Yes, definitely should buy it. So, you know, as I said, this podcast is different chapters from our book we wrote. And this week, we're diving into chapter four of our book, which is all about building a data science portfolio. Emily, what is a data science portfolio? So a data science portfolio is a set of data science projects. So ideally, this includes uh, code, uh, as we talked about previously on the podcast, a big part of uh, working in data science is coding in R, Python. Uh, and to share that code, you can use Git or GitHub, which we'll talk about a little bit. Uh, you can also have a blog post accompanying this code. So for example, you could show some visualizations you came up with, or maybe you make a dashboard instead that people can go and view and interact with. So really, it's about uh, showing off the data science skills that you have through showing uh, your code, your process, and your results. Yeah, I would say that all makes sense. And it's almost like, you know, you hear about people who want to get into art school and they make their portfolio of art projects where it's like a collection of their best art project that they show off to the college admissions board. I guess I don't really know how like art school works. Um, but, you know, so it's basically a collection of like, look, here's some work that represents me. And by having this collection, you will trust that I will be a good fit for your university. Or if you're a data scientist looking to be hired, all of your skills will be showcased and you'll be like, ah, oh, of course you want to hire me. Yes. So Emily, can you talk a little bit why this matters for first time data scientists? Yeah. So just to start this podcast out, I want to be clear that plenty of very successful data scientists don't have a quote unquote data science portfolio. And the reason for that is one, a lot of data scientists, uh, your work that you do as part of your job, you can't necessarily share that. So you can't share the code, you can't share the results. Uh, so even if you've done a ton of relevant work that isn't something you can make public, which is a big part of it being a portfolio. The other reason is that, you know, you could do it in your free time, but that shouldn't be a requirement and isn't a requirement for folks going up the career ladder, which we will talk about a bit more. But that being said, uh, someone who this really does help is people applying to their first data science job because companies want to know, or you know, it would be great if they did know that you've done something similar before, even if it's not for a company. You know, I think that really, um, it's tough to be a first-time data scientist, right? Because you feel like you're ready for the job and you, you, know, you, you feel in your heart you're ready to be a data scientist. But someone looking at you may not see your see you as someone who they say oh yes this clearly isn't obviously a data scientist and i remember like the when i was finishing my undergrad and you know like i was looking at jobs the first time or undergrad and masters you know i remember this feeling of like well how can you tell i actually have this stuff like i felt like i felt inadequate like i didn't feel like i'm like i know i have this stuff but my resume all i list is some courses on it you know or maybe like one quick internship and it's like i had this struggle where i'm like i know i'm more than what's just on the list of courses i've taken um, but I, I feel like I'm struggling to show that. 
And I think my advice to past self would have been like, look, uh, uh, do a couple projects, make them public in a way that people can see them. And that really will go a long way. Just having something that you can hang your hat on on, look, here is one piece of evidence that I have some skill in this. And I'm not um, just a person who took courses and cheated on the tests and never figured out why or, you know, like, I, I really do have some capabilities in this field. Yeah. And I think with that, um, I want to be clear, the bar is not necessarily that high, right? It's not like, oh my God, if I put, because I think people get really scared about sharing stuff publicly because they're like, okay, what if they look at my code and they're like, oh, this is inefficient. You know, I can't believe they didn't use this package or, you know, they did this method wrong. Uh, But really, especially if you're going into a first time job, a lot more of it is like, can they code at all? Can they clean data? Can they reason about data and make visualizations that like, yes, maybe, oh, they could have tweaked that. I could, you know, tweak this, but they went beyond just using the default uh, ggplot scheme or they, they put some thought into adding a title and adding, you know, changing the legend and so on and so forth. So really don't put too much pressure on yourself that this has to be a masterpiece. It's just about getting something out there. Yeah. And I would say this is a thing that continuously surprises me. And I think even to this day, you know, I'm fairly senior in this field or whatever. And even to this day, I'm still surprised at like how low the bar is in the world. Like, like I kind of had this expectation, you know, as I was saying, when I finished my master, I had the expectation that you have to have all these skills and like, oh, technically my SQL, I don't have that much SQL experience. I won't get hired because I don't have every, and like, no, the bar is like, have you ever considered joining two tables together in your life? Have you ever, like, I mean, I'm being a little facetious here, but like really the bar is much lower than I think a newcomer to this field thinks. And it's really not about being an expert in every one of these areas. It's like hitting the minimum requirement in each area, if that, hitting the minimum requirement in most areas. And a portfolio is a way of showing, look, you can tell I've used SQL at least once. Look, I've made at least one data visualization in my life. Um, You know, and really getting over those like minimum uh, bars. Yeah, so we've talked about like some of those minimum bars, but beyond like, you know, putting some code up, make some visualization. Uh, Jacqueline, like what makes a good portfolio project? A good portfolio project. That's a great question. Um, so it really depends. And I think, okay, okay, I'm going to punt on that question. Let me punt on it. Because um, I'm punt a co-host. I get to, yeah. No, I'm punting it to you. Okay. Yeah. So, so I'm not going to answer that question yet because I'm going to, I'm going to answer it. I'm going to answer a question you didn't ask. Because I think it relates to that question. Yeah. And the question is, why should you make a portfolio? And I think one reason we talked about quite extensively so far is, hey, if you're looking to get a job, it can show off your skills. Um, Or that you have the minimum of some skills. So that's great. That is one reason. There are other benefits, too. One is it helps you learn new skills, right? And we talked about last week's episode, right? It's sometimes hard to stay motivated when you're trying to do something on your own in your free time. And a, a portfolio project is a great way to force yourself to learn, or not force, but you know, to give yourself an incentive to learn a technique that you maybe wouldn't have otherwise. Um, another thing that is good, and I'm foreshadowing future chapters, is that a um, portfolio project actually helps you be a part of the community. Because if you take your stuff and you make it public and other people see it, you get to make friends and then you can like really join, start going to conferences, meeting people, giving talks, blah, blah, blah. Like a lot of people's entry into the data science community is by building their first portfolio. So to the question that I punted uh, like a minute ago, uh, what makes a good portfolio? I'd say it really depends. Um, It depends which of those different goals you're trying to shoot for. Um, Kind of in general, you should it's generally better if the outcome of your portfolio is something other people can digest. 
like or portfolio projects, something other people can digest. So for instance, if you do an analysis and you make a blog post about it that is human readable and understandable to not you, that's great. Now this is something that other people can understand that's and read. If you're trying to like just learn a new technique, then it can be easy to be like, well, I technically got this working on my free time. And like I, I made the techni technical thing work, so I learned the skill. Um, so maybe then you don't need to go the extra step of making a blog post or making the code public or things like that, um, which is why I kind of punted on what makes it good. But I really do think that is in general, if you can do it, it is a very nice thing to do to try and have the goal be I can make something that someone else can consume in some way. Yeah, and I think as a, what is now, fourth benefit um, <laughs> is exactly on that, like kind of motivating yourself to learn, but also figuring out what do you want to learn? Because a big problem, you know, we've talked about is data science is such a vast space. Like, where do you start? Do you start with web scraping or machine learning? But machine learning is huge. Like, which part of machine learning? So if you find a problem that you care about, it's a great way of scoping down and figuring out, okay, well, I'm going to learn this thing because this is the next thing I need to know to take the next step in this project. Emily, you have no idea how many times I started a project to learn JavaScript and then stopped because I'm like, I just don't care enough to learn the rest of the way. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I mean, in that way, it was a valuable thing to to repeatedly learn that like, hey, you know what, I actually don't have enough interest in JavaScript to sustain me learning it, which mm -hmm. is great. <laughs> yeah. And I think this is like, this could be a way also to test out the waters. Like, are you interested in data science and data analytics? And to be clear, this doesn't mean like to be interested in it must mean like, okay, I just worked an eight hour job and I want to spend the next six hours also doing this. But if you find yourself repeatedly being like, ah, oh, like, you know, I don't really feel like coding this. And, and if it's not part of your job, so this would be the only time of like the week you're doing this and you're just, you know, don't find yourself really motivated. You know, it could be like, hey, I've put in my 40 hour work week at my unrelated job. I don't want to keep working, but you know, it might be worth reflecting. Oh, if I'm sort of don't find anything I'm interested in, if I'm not like really interested in like courses and learning about this thing and reading it, like maybe that's a signal that you wouldn't enjoy the job as much as you thought you would. Yeah. And you know, okay. You know, I want to stop here. We're like 11 and a half minutes into this podcast, something like that. And I don't think we've actually given an example of what a real portfolio project is like. So I think it would be great if we each took a turn describing one portfolio project of ours that we've done. Because, you know, we, you and me, we've done a few. We've been, we've been around a little bit. Um, would you like to go first? Otherwise, I'm happy to. No, I'll go first. Okay. Uh, so as I mentioned before, I did the bootcamp Metis, which is a, a three-month bootcamp, data science bootcamp, and it's very project-based. So the idea is you're... First project in the first week is a group project, but after that, they're all individual and you have a lot of leeway in what you want to do for each project leading up to the final one where it's totally your choice. In my case, I decided I wanted to look at data science freelancers. So to do that, I used, uh, I figured out, okay, well, this website Upwork is where a lot of data science uh, freelance jobs are posted and, and data science freelancers have profiles. I went to the API documentation and I pulled the, uh, I think it was something like 93,000 uh, data science freelancers, uh, their profiles, and about 3,000 of the current data science related jobs. And from there, I decided, all right, let me do some exploratory analysis. Like, what are the rates of the, the jobs that are offering? How many are full-time versus part-time? Uh, some text analysis on what are the most common words in data science freelancers' profiles. I did a uh, skill mapping, a skill correlation matrix, so we could see, okay, what are the different types? So we could see some are actually more like web developers, some are very analytic, some were machine learning, so on and so forth. And finally, I built a Shiny application in R 
that would list all of the jobs that were available and you could apply filters. Like you only wanted to look at full-time jobs. Uh, you only wanted to look at, you know, jobs that pay a certain amount, etc. And you could also enter your profile text and it would sort these jobs based on how well they matched your, uh, your profile text. And that was the final project I did at Metis. And I actually did not end up writing a blog post about it, which I had meant to do, but the app was online. So in some job interviews, I would take along my laptop. When I talked about this, I'd say, hey, do you wanna see it? And I could pull it up on my laptop and show them like, oh, you know, and here, this is how we interact, so on and so forth. And I think that was a really valuable thing because it showed I could go end to end from getting the data myself, cleaning it, exploring it to making a product that someone could use. Yeah. And you brought up a good point that I was going to bring up and I forgot, which is just um, it's so valuable in an interview to have something to talk about. If you're a senior data scientist, then you probably have 10 or 20 projects or whatever you've done on your jobs. But if you're... Um, you're newer into the field, you may not when someone says, Oh, tell me about a time you did a, you know, like you had a struggles with a project. By having actual projects you've done in your free time, you've given yourself an alternative to when someone else may have talked about their existing job experience. And that's great. Yeah. So Jacqueline, you want to talk about one of your projects? Yeah. And so I had to think about before, like, I had to think about this, like, do I want the most lewd project I worked on or just the medium lewd work? I was going to say, you have a couple that I was... I know, a lot. I have, have like, a brand of (laughs) uncomfortable data science. Okay, so I'm going to choose medium lewd, which is, um, and so I'll give the story. And I think the story is a little bit in the book. but so at one point, you know, like a couple of years ago, it really was popular for this like style of like online image of like, here is uh, here's Coachella uh, bands generated by a neural network or here's a blank generated by a neural network. And I was always jealous as a data scientist because I'm like, I want to be funny. And those people are funny with neural networks and I don't know how to use neural networks. And so I've always wanted to learn neural networks, but never really got around to it. Um, and it turns out that those are actually a lot of them are made by um, um um, a group called Botnik Labs, who's super funny. Um, so you guys should all check them out. Anyway, um, so I always wanted to make one of those. And finally, at one point, I saw the state of Arizona, an, a news article from like 2012, that's like the state of Arizona has a list of all the license plates that are too offensive. So like people went to the DMV and I'm like, I want like this license plate. And they're like, no way. Um, so they actually have a list of that. And I'm like, oh, this is it. This is the perfect thing to train a neural network on. So I did a Freedom of Information Act to get a DVD with that like list of like 40,000 um, offensive license plates on it. And then I taught myself um, neural networks using R. And I never used neural networks before. I never used Keras before. And I learned all of this. And as I learned it, I realized how way easier this technology was than kind of I thought it'd been. And I think people made it out to be like, deep learning is so complicated and you need all these GPUs and blah, blah, blah. Like, and it's actually fairly simple. And so I made this blog post about, in an image of like, here's a bunch of neural network generated license plates. And I made a blog post and it got some traction. And I ended up giving a, t- like I used it as a conference talk of like, look, this is the funny project I did in my free time. And then I used it as a template for, hey, look, it's actually pretty easy to learn neural networks. Here's a, you know, here's a project I did to teach myself neural networks. And on actual jobs when I was consulting, like they're actually consulting engagements where I use the technologies that I learned when I was doing this ridiculous offensive license plate project. Um, and so like the the point is, is like this little project of mine ended up getting me conference talks It ended up getting me, um, you know, to, to be able to like to help people learn Keras from it. And I will just say that um, I think it's easy when you hear people like me, like there, make it sound like, oh, look, 
Jacqueline makes it so easy. She just went out there and she did this project and like project, like why is it hard for me? And these things are so easy. But like that project actually took me several months to do. And I remember at one point I got stuck and I got really frustrated because my models just wasn't generating good stuff. And I remember talking to a neural network expert at a conference and I'm like, listen, this is the project I'm working on. Do you have any ideas? And the guy just gave me this ridiculous look of like, what is wrong with you? Find a better project. And I'm like, I was really indignant after that. I'm like, no, I'm going to make it work. And it turns out I had an off by one error in my code. And when I fixed that, it was very funny. Um, so the point is, is that like a products, projects don't have to be just, you sit down and you do them and you're done. Like they can take months. Like I've had a project take over a year before because I just work on them, put it down, work on them, put it down, try and make a funny joke out of them. <laughs> Turns out it's not funny. Wait six months, come up with a better idea. Like that's a very natural thing. Yeah. And I really like that example because I think it shows, I think sometimes when people think of a portfolio project, they're like, well, I'm interested in this industry, so I need to pick something that's like very related to it. But, you know, no company would ask you to do this project, but it, could, it still, it, one, you learned a new skill, and two, you could showcase that skill in a way that people can understand. Uh, and that's why I really advise people when thinking of projects is like, think of a question or something you're genuinely interested in answering and something you're genuinely interested in developing. Um, and don't, you know, may maybe in your case, uh, like a super lewd project would not necessarily <laughs> be what I would- That's not my most lewd, yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. That's what I was saying. I think of the other one that I would bring up in a job interview. <laughs> but, but assuming it's like appropriate for the workplace, like it, it really, you know, the important thing is you show like, oh, I did web scraping, I did clustering, I did this. And it's totally great if it's like, I did a, my most recent blog post is on Pokemon because I wanted to find out what was the best uh, type combination for a Pokemon team. And again, no company ever gonna ask me to do this, but I learned some stuff about matrices um, and, you know, combinatorics uh, and how to do it in R and I showed that off. Uh, and so that's why don't don't worry too much about like, you know, it's great, it's bonus points. Probably if you're interested in a certain industry, you may be interested in side projects related to it, but it's totally fine to do something that's not directly related to the company. Yeah, so then let's talk about like, what would you say is the process? Like, okay, so we've listed out some example projects we've done. Like for you, let's say for you specifically, like what's your mm -hmm. process to actually do a project? And then I'll tell yeah. you mine, because I bet mine's different. Yeah, Okay. so one thing I want to start out with is I honestly haven't done that many side projects since I started working as a data scientist. I've done a few, like the Pokemon one is something I mentioned, but generally it started with um, with the Pokemon one. It was a real like question, like I am playing Pokemon. I can only have six Pokemon on my team and there's, I don't know, like 18 types. Uh, and certain ones are strong or weak against others. Like which one should I have on my team? And I thought, well, there's a big matrix of, uh, you know, what types are strong against other, you know, types. So that doesn't really help me. I don't want to just scan through this, but I bet R can solve it. So in that case, it was very like problem driven. It's like, I have this problem. I think R can solve it. Um, and it was, you know, relatively, the data was very easy to get. And then it was a little more of like, okay, the math uh, to work this out. Uh, other things, it's been more uh, like, just looking at a data set and being like, why don't I explore it? And so the Tidy Tuesday is great for this. So another blog post I have is on Bob Ross paintings. And I don't know, I was just sort of inspired. I was like, oh, I haven't done a blog post in a while. I haven't like done a little side project. Uh, Tidy Tuesday is a project that publishes a new data set every week and people uh, 
go analyze it. Some people do modeling. Some people focus on really cool visualizations. Like it really runs the gamut. Uh, they share what they learn. And so I went, okay, you know, I, I'm familiar with Bob Ross. Why don't I just do some exploratory analysis of his painting? So I did. I did uh, some principal components analysis, like understanding, okay, like what, basically like what types of paintings uh, did he do? And so in that case, it went not from a, a you know burning question I have about Bob Ross paintings, but more like, hey, this data set is available. Why don't I take a look and see what I can find? That what makes about you, sense. Jacqueline? Well, okay. And so let me just probe on that a little bit. So you, how do you know like when you're done with a project? How are you like, okay, this is a good enough state to call it like, okay. Oh, God, it's like, sometimes you're like, it's never, <laughs> I think this is really easy to get into is that like, it's never done. So like, in some cases it's clear, like the Pokemon one, I answered the question. I got the like, these are the six, you know, I think it was like 10 combination of six different types that makes you strong against most other types. So like that was a very clear, like this is the answer and I am done because I got the answer I cared about. Um, and you may have cases like that. You're like, or you built the app that you cared about. So like something I did, uh, another like little one that I never published was I like this series by Refinery29, Money Diaries. It doesn't have a search function. So people submit like, this is uh, my week of spending but it doesn't have a search function. Like I wanna know New York, I wanna know people who make over this amount. So I built a little app for myself that I could just do that. And so in that case, I was done. I answered the problem. I could search through this by, I did some text parsing. But in other cases, it's it's really hard because there's always gonna be more to do if you start out with this more like exploratory, I start with a data set. Um, and so I think one thing to think about there is just, okay, when, you know, when do I have sort of enough that I think this is like interesting to share? You can always say like, oh, and in part two of this post, I'm going to do so-and-so and then never write part two. But you you want to keep yourself from being paralyzed and thinking, uh, okay, I until I've exhaustively searched this or I've answered like every question that came up when I got my first answers, uh, I can't share it. Because that, that way just lies that you'll never end up sharing anything. Yeah. Okay, so for me. So I don't like... I'm not really like, okay, I have a free weekend. I'm going to work on a data science project. That's just not how my brain works. So I will go for like probably many months and not really do any projects. And then suddenly an idea will strike me, right? Like, so in that story, like, what if I train a neural network on license plates that are expensive? Or, um, or like, what if I make a website that mashes up Twitter accounts together? Like, I'll just have this at a moment. And then it's like... I think it's because of my my mental disorders that I just like suddenly get into a manic state. And I'm like, oh, man, this is such a good idea. I, I There's nothing I want to do except work on this project. And I'll just get into this thing of like where I just get like so excited. And I'll just like hone in. And I'll be like, OK, I'm going to learn neural networks. I'm going to do whatever. And I'll like and I will get like really excited. and I'll go. And sometimes I'll hit a state, as you say, where I'm like, OK, this is great. I got to this is so cool. I just got to share it with the world right now. And maybe it's not as done as it could be, but I just like my excitement overwhelms me and I just got to share it. And sometimes I'm like, I have a really good idea. And as I'm coding this, it is not as funny as I thought it would be, or it's not whatever. And then I will put it down. And sometimes I will pick it up months later. And sometimes I will never pick it up. And I would say probably two thirds of the projects I've started, I have not finished, which I think is fine. I think ideas, you work on them and you, they don't pan out and you maybe learn something on the way. But it really is very much a like, okay, right in this moment, this idea just intrigues me and I just gotta go do it. Um, that is really my project process. Um, and then, yeah, I have blog posts out right now that are part two coming soon and it's been out for months and I haven't, and you know, I just accepted that's just the biz. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's the biz. And I really like you mentioned that, like I also have abandoned projects, abandoned blog posts, you know, so on and so forth. Sometimes abandoned before I publicly share them, sometimes abandoned, like in the middle of coding it up. And that's totally fine. And that's normal. Uh, you know, again, if you're doing this more for the, like having something to show employers, yeah, you're probably like, it's worth it to push yourself a little bit more to go that final step. So you have something to share. Um, but if you're doing it for your own learning or just for fun, like don't feel bad. It's very normal to like leave something behind either because you lost interest or you realize like, ah, I just, you know, that this isn't as interesting, as challenging as whatever, as I thought. I want to say one last thing. And that's Emily and I, we've, you and I, we both said, um, hey, it's great if you make a blog post, it's great. So you make this public. I think there's an expectation there that like that somehow means that you're gonna want lots of views and you're gonna want like lots of likes and retweets and all things like that but like really that's not the point the point is not to get all the attention you get on your project and even it like it kind of like it's a bummer if you work for a long time on something and you don't get that like a thousand retweets for your cool project but like that that's not really the point the point is just to have something so that you can learn from it and you can you share it when you need to, whether that's in a job interview or maybe you make a talk out of it someday or blah, blah, blah. Um, but I think a lot of people that get discouraged if they make an initial blog post about a project and they don't get the most traction, but like, it's not the destination, it's the journey, which, you know, it's it's great if you do get likes, retweets, whatever. Um, but if you don't, that's like, that doesn't mean your project isn't cool and good. And like some of the projects I think are the most cool that I've worked on have not gotten barely any likes or retweets or comments or things like that. Um, and I think that's very okay. And I think learning to accept that's good. But if you do want a little bit of traction on your blog post, uh, my brother Dave Robinson, who is, I think it's principal data scientist at Heap, uh, he's DRob at Twitter. He has a fair amount of followers and he has an offer out that anyone who's uh, blogged for the first time, he'll retweet it. And he often like reads it and retweets it with some commentary. Uh, so that can be a nice way. But I think Jacqueline, your point is so on. It's not about like the number of reads or whatever. It's about being the learning and being able to pull it out when you need to. And with that, let's take a break. This week's episode is brought to you by SQL or SQL. Not many tools in data science have the honor of being around for 50 years, but after all this time, SQL is still going strong. Structured query language is a way of delivering you exactly the data you want from a database each week, no subscription required. By using SQL, you can write powerful queries to join, modify, and extract data for your analysis. Best of all, you can use SQL directly from almost any modern programming language with ODBC drivers. Keep plugging away at R or Python and still harness the power of SQL. SQL, it's what's for data. Okay, so what I would like to talk about now is, okay, like, let's be real here. If you're a more senior data scientist and you're listening to the episode, you'd be like, yeah, we got it, projects. Because I would say prod make a project portfolio is maybe the number one most commonly given advice for people looking to get into the field of data science. Like, this is it. They're like, go make a project, create a GitHub page, put stuff on there, create a project, finish Like, it is so common. That said... When I have been leading interviews and interviewing data science, potential data scientists, I would say maybe, maybe one in five data scientists have done this. I think it's very, it's much more rare than the amount of times this advice is given out would imply. And I would say the majority of data scientists who are not like 
out there getting influencer status on Twitter or whatever, the majority of data scientists do not do this. They do not make project portfolios. So what I would like to talk to about with you, Emily, is the question of if this advice is so common, then wh- why do people not do it, not make projects? And how, how can someone overcome whatever keeps the other people from not doing this? Yeah, that's tough. And it's interesting. So one post about making projects was uh, Mikhail Popov's, and he actually at the think of the top of the post now says, don't basically don't listen. This was written a few years ago. He says, don't listen to this. Go and read Vicky Boykis's uh, data science is different now instead. So basically he's saying, I don't think making a project portfolio is useful anymore. Like essentially there's too much competition, like go to Vicky's post, which is like basically essentially kind of like get in the back door, right? Like go to be a data analyst, go be a data engineer. Don't try to be a data scientist right away. Um, but like, I, I disagree with that a little bit because I think in some ways it's more valuable now. Like I think there was not nearly as much competition four or five years ago. And so you didn't really need to stand out as much. And it was a bit easier, like the titles were changing. So you sort of just got promoted from data analyst to data scientist. Um, you know, there is uh, certainly people who did have formal educations in statistics. Um, you know, there, that, that number is increasing. There are data science degrees now. So even people from like, you know, the quote unquote now, like, you know, more standard background, they just weren't as many of those folks. So I think there's, because there's more competition now, you do need to do a bit more to stand out. And I would, I would say that I could, I could see the argument that a project portfolio does not help you get an interview. Because I think when post people review resumes, they probably don't go and check your portfolio, just because resume reviewing is very quick, you have hundreds of resumes, you just kind of, so I suspect the portfolio maybe doesn't help as much there. But I do think it, yeah, I do think, to your point, like you really want to stand out, I do think a project can really make a difference in the interview phase and just giving you things, more bits of experience to talk about. So I agree that like, uh, it is kind of different, but I don't know if I would mean disregard, don't do projects. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think though with what could help you get the interview and actually, you know, Jack was a hiring manager of Shake Your Take is I wonder like, does it matter that like someone lists a GitHub portfolio? And if you do happen to visit it, it's not just like one cloned repo. Like there's, you may not look at the code, but you're like, there is something there that looks like an original project. Yeah, so I think the, I think the message got out pretty well of have a GitHub account, but yeah, I think, of the times I was a hiring manager and I saw a GitHub account, which was probably the majority of times, the number of times I went on there and what was on there was essentially like tumbleweeds tumbling by was probably 90%. So I think most people make the GitHub page, but do not have, they do not even, not even like, oh, here's a beautiful project you can consume yourself. Like there's not even code there besides here I I, I copied it tutorial template yeah or you or you see a project i've seen some projects folks which i i definitely get starting out but i think i i do want to talk briefly about of you know they take a kaggle data set and a kaggle problem right like this is the or the, i don't know the ames housing data set which is one of the famous ones right and they're like okay predict home prices and so they like run some like linear regression or random forest or whatever to predict home prices and to me, that's not super interesting because that cuts out a lot of the part of the data science process, which is gathering the data, cleaning it, and figuring out what you even want to do with it, uh, which is very hard, which is, I think, why people don't do it. <laughs> I think that, to your point, I do think that kind of is a pretty limited project When if, if you take out all the, like, finding the data. Blah, blah, blah. But I also think that's still a problem beyond what most people yeah. yeah, that is something. That's fair. And most that's people fair. don't have anything. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw some ideas at you. Okay. why I don't why think people, people don't do it right and like here we are writing books saying to do it and people don't do it 
because um, I haven't listened to this podcast. No. Um, okay. So one, I think that most people, when you're at a job, someone tells you what to do, right? They're like, go take this data, make this kind of model, or make a model that does this for it, right? And so I think most people are used to the the comforting shell of having someone tell you what you're supposed to do and what matters. And I think for a lot of this project stuff, you are not given that shell of being told what to do and what matters, right? You have to go decide what data you think is interesting and you have to decide what matters for that. And that feels very vulnerable, meaning that you may feel like, oh God, am I gonna pick the right data? Uh, Is this gonna make sense? Like it's very easy to have self-doubt in that in a paralyzing way of like, I don't even know where to start finding data. Like, I don't even know. Do you you want me to, what? I don't know. This is all confusing to me. I'm going to go browse data science Reddit or whatever. Um, And I think that barrier, that that hurdle of I need to kind of figure out what I'm doing on my own as a starting point is just a massive hurdle that most people do not pass. Yeah. I mean, I think even beyond the like, what should I be working on? Exactly. It's when you get stuck, who do you go to for help, right? If you're at a job, you maybe go to your manager, you go to your peers. But if you're an aspiring data scientist, like, you know, and you're not in some sort of like, you know, master's program or boot camp or whatever, it's like you get stuck. What do you do? Like you search Stack Overflow and you're just like, ah, you know what? I just can't figure this out. I give up. And it can be hard to find a project that's appropriate to your skill level, right? Like maybe you start out saying you realize like, oh, this is like 10 steps beyond what I can do, at least what I can do on my own. I will say that that happens to me all the time as a more senior data scientist. It's all the time I'll start a project. I'll get a little base in. I'm like, I have no idea what's going on here. I don't even know what to do. I'm just going to give up. And now I am been around enough to know when is really the right time of like, no, this is an order of magnitude harder than me, uh, than my skill set. I really can't cut this for now. Or which is like, you know what? I'm just getting a little burnt out because I've been at it for three hours. If I go walk for a mile and come back, I'll feel better about it. Um, so but I think if you're, yes, if you're earlier in your career, it's harder to have that intuition. And I think that is just crippling. And so my advice, if you're listening to this and you're finding yourself trying to do a project and getting stuck there, for me, the advice I give, and Emily, maybe you give totally different advice, and that's fine. For me, I really think it's kind of a shotgun approach, which is totally okay to start on a project. If it doesn't work for you, give up on it. Try a different one. If it doesn't, like, if this data, you can't get it loaded correctly into Python, try a different data set. Like, like rather than trying, like, don't feel bad giving up on something and just keep keep working until you find one that really just is a better fit. Yeah, I think exactly that advice. And in general, I think exploratory projects are easier than predictive projects. The problem with prediction, oh, it turns out you can't predict the stock market, right? And then you might feel like, oh, is it because I'm like not a data scientist because data not you know the the data is not there, whatever. Versus exploratory, like, hey, let me use an API to get this data set, and I'll learn how the API. I don't have to worry about like web scraping and like getting the exact thing. Okay, great, got the data loaded into our Python. Let me just play around with it. Let me like find what are the most common words used, you know, on this Reddit thread or all that stuff. And I think that is a bit of a lower barrier than setting yourself like, okay, I got to predict, you know, this thing um, and trying to figure out like where you're, you know, you're quote unquote failing if the, if, if you're not getting good accuracy. And I think this kind of leads to my second hypothesis on why people don't really do projects very much, which is that finishing something's really hard, right? And we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, but it's really hard. Even if you have like, for me, I have projects that are like 
80% of the way, 90% of the way there. Like they're working, blah, blah, blah. But like they just like going through the, like doing that last polishing step and getting it on the internet is actually brutally hard because like there's just like a lot more work in the like final polishing than it may feel like. It. Like, and as you start, you're like, oh, this is a lot of work. I have to make like a, ugh, the UI needs needs these improvements before people can get it. Ugh, I need to make the blog post. I need to host the 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 app somewhere. Like there, there may just be a lot of work. And so I think doing that finishing work is also really hard and a very great reason to not, you know, have a project portfolio. Yep. And my third hypothesis sort of relates to your first one is, and I will admit to this myself, of being like sort of driven by external rewards, external praise. This isn't necessarily money. It could be like recognition. It could be just signs of progress. And that can be a lot harder to get when you're working on your own product. A project, right? You don't have a manager being like, good job. You know, maybe, you know, there's, there's so long to get results worth sharing that you're just sort of slogging along by yourself. So I think that makes it really easy to lose motivation because you don't have the accountability to anyone and you don't have that reward of, of showing it to folks along the way. I, I am absolutely susceptible to that. Like the only thing that gets me through a project is the hope that at some point someone will find it funny who is not me. <laughs> like if, if I knew no one would see this but me, I would never do a project. I just, yeah. yeah, I need that validation. Okay, so yeah, then- That's me, why we're both oh, on Twitter. Yeah, oh yeah, oh God, that's that's what Twitter is. Um, okay, so I have hypothesis number, I think, four, um, which is sharing to the world is, and you, I think you've mentioned this before, sharing to the world is terribly vulnerable. Like, oh my God, people are going to see my code and like, what if it's wrong, right? Like, what right. if I What if they're those? mean? Yeah, what if they're mean? And like, I don't think I've almost ever seen anyone ever like nitpick someone's blog post. Like, okay, I guess I've a couple times seen it, but it's very rare that someone will come in and be nitpicky. Like most people just won't say very much, but still like it feels like people are going to give you a lot of nitpicking and like, ugh. Yeah, and it's possible. Like I've had this happen uh, once on a blog post with just some like random person tweeting being like so pedantic. Um, <laughs> I guess kind of what helped there is I don't know, like one thing that helped was other people saying it was helpful, right? Just sort of this dissenting voice that like, oh, you know, actually like I found the way you did this really useful. Uh, but I think that's a not, I, I, I was going to say reasonable fear. And I don't quite mean that it's super common because um, it's not, but it's a very understandable fear. It could happen. Um, but I think part of it is, you know, think about the communities you share it with. So for example, the R stats community on Twitter, if you're doing an R project is super friendly to beginners. So I remember like whenever someone tweets like, oh, I'm, you know, learning R, like what should I do? They have like 300 responses from people who are so excited that they're learning R and like, you know, very welcoming and are not gatekeeping at all. So, you know, that could be something you could think about is like, okay, maybe I don't want to publish. I, I don't, you know, the other thing to remember is if you share, if you create a blog, if you don't share it anywhere, no one's probably going to find it. So like, even if it's a public blog, you could just keep it for interviews, right? Like, and, it, and you know, no, no one is realistically going to like go and like randomly find your blog and like post about it on Reddit and be really mean about it. Like that's not, that's not going to happen. So if you want, you could just, yeah, same thing with a GitHub profile, right? So if you want, you can, you can make these public quote unquote, but if you just show them in interviews and on your resume, you know, that that's different than deciding, oh, I actually want to tweet about it. I want to, you know, put it on medium. I want to try to find people to view this, which is also great, but you don't have to do that to make your portfolio valuable. Yes. Um, okay. And so reason number five, and we have five, reason number five, I think people, also the fact that there are this many reasons make me feel like I can't believe anyone has ever done a project. And like, <laughs> fair, probably why not. Um, reason number five, 
I don't want to do work outside of work. And I love yeah. this reason. This is great. And like, you don't want to do work outside of work? Power to you. Like, like a, a portfolio is a great way to get a career in data science. It is not the only way. There's all sorts of things you can do. Don't let people make you feel like you got to be doing work outside of work. Yeah. And I think this is, you know, pretty much also saying that not every, like really, like as we talked about before, certain backgrounds benefit from this more than others, right? If you're a undergraduate coming out of a data science or a stats or a computer science, uh, you know, undergraduate or master's or PhD, right? You have a pretty clear story to tell. You might have projects you already did as part of your like, you know, quote unquote, nine to five, your classes. And so you don't need to do supplemental projects or same thing with my bootcamp, right? Is my job in quotes was to do these projects like during the day. Um, and I actually didn't spend that much time working on it in the evenings. So it may be that, yeah, you, you don't come from a background or you come from, you're doing data analytics, uh, you know, data science projects in your work, even if you don't have that title. So you just talk about those in interviews. So exactly that, like uh, if you're already doing this as part of your, you know, sort of normal schooling, normal work, absolutely. I think definitely don't feel like you need to on the side. If on the other hand, you're not really doing this kind of work, uh, you know, it may be that this is one of the few ways that you, one, can get practice doing it and two, show that you can, that you can do these things. And so I think that's the case where you want to think about more the value that it could bring. <sighs> People really have this like ridiculous notion that if you are not passionate about your Oh, software development, data science job. If you're not passionate enough to do that work outside of work, you shouldn't be doing that job, which is so wrong and like weirdly kind of messed up form of capitalism, but so wrong. And like you absolutely can 100% only do work at work. And that is totally fine. And that doesn't make you less good of a data scientist. And those people are messed up who say that. Yes. Have I talked about unlocking the clubhouse already on this podcast? No. I what? have so many feelings about this. Okay. Just brief, brief pitch. So it's a book called Unlocking the Clubhouse, Women in Computing. So it was uh, written at Carnegie Mellon uh, by Jane Margolis and Alan Fisher. So I think they were in the computer science and I think the social science department. And basically they wanted to understand, you know, why aren't there that many women undergraduates in computer science? And a big, so they did a bunch of interviews. And a big thing they found was this idea of passion. You had to be passionate to be successful. But also, what does passion look like? Passion looks like obsession. Passion looks like I've been doing this since I was five. Passion looks like these are all my interests. And a lot of the women would say, you know, I'm interested in this, but I don't dream in code like they do, like the men do. Uh, and they found actually this was not, you know, how much you, you the extra you coded or, or how young you started was actually not correlated with outcomes in terms of your grades. But because of this perception that like, one, you have to be passionate too, this is what this all passion looks like, this all consuming interest, it really dissuaded women. So I, I, I'm very against this idea that one, you have to be passionate and two, that passion means, you know, doing it in all your time, you have no other interests and like you have to have it as a side hobby as well. Yeah, and we should have said that earlier in this podcast, that projects <laughs> on the side are great, and I love doing them, and Emily does them, but do you don't have to do them, and don't make us feel, make you think you have to do them. That's messed up. And then, okay, so I got one last point on this. Um, side projects are a great way to learn new data science techniques and skills and things like that, but um, you can get experience that is valuable to the skill of data science that are not from coding. Um, so you can get experiences like, right, like the idea of like, hey, if you're, you know, you're leading the parent teachers association, right? Like that gives you 
the skill of learning how to talk and, you know, negotiate and things like that, which is incredibly valuable to data science. If you do stand-up comedy, it gives you the ability to stand in front of a group of people, which makes you better suited to stand in front of a group of um, executives. And so the idea that the only way you can grow as a data scientist outside of your job is through side projects is not true. It is extremely not true. And there are lots of things you can do in your free time that will help you in this job. And don't feel like because we wrote a chapter or other people giving you the advice of you should have side project, that that means that is the one and only way you can grow as a data scientist. I'm so glad you ended on that because, I mean, our book was premised on the idea that there's so much more to, uh, to data science and getting a job and being successful than coding and statistics, uh, right? Like that's why we wrote this book on all the non-technical parts. So I think that's such a great point. There's a lot of other skills you can build. Some of those, you know, come with uh, data science side projects like communication maybe, but absolutely, you know, think broadly in terms of what will help you advance your career the best. And what will advance this podcast? Another break. All right, Jacqueline. So this week I came up with a game for you. I am so, so excited. You have no idea. I'm, I'm like, no, that makes it worse. That makes it worse. Now oh, you're like no. too excited. I'm like, you'll hate it. Um, okay. But so I thought, you know, we already talked about some of our side projects. So I thought, all right, why don't we walk through the step, like get, giving you a new data set, like how you would think about it. Um, and this is a data set that can possibly exist, but I thought that would make it more interesting, which is let's say you could get, and it's like all loaded into R, Python or whatever, what everyone has ever thought of you ever. Oh no. Oh my God. Oh, no. Okay. Okay. Is this too okay. terrifying? No, this is, this is, un, this is, oh, there's so many angles. Okay. Oh, uh, yeah. Right. Okay. So you, you get this. Yeah. Okay. So make, what do you do? Just a side project. Okay. So first off, I don't know if this is something I'd make as a public blog post or this might just be a. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Maybe just keep this for yourself. Okay. Yeah. Your own interest in it. <laughs> so I would probably, I mean, I would do. So first off, okay, what am I going to try and do here? Am I going to try and make a model? Am I going to try and, like I said, I'm just definitely not going to make a blog post out of this. This is for me. And then I think pretty click clearly, I'm being like, okay, this is probably some exploratory data analysis, right? Because like the, the interest of this is how am I going to slice and dice this data more than I really want to try learning linear regressions on this data. So I really want to make, so to me, I would like to make some visualizations that help me learn a lot more about what people think about me. So... Okay, okay, so I'm talking this out loud. So now my project is going to be, I have this table of what anyone's ever thought of me. And I'm going to try and make, like, let's say, a either R Markdown or Jupyter Notebook, because I'm trying to be a little agnostic here. Um, like, let's say an R, R Markdown or Jupyter Notebook of just interesting visualizations of what people have thought over me, have thought of me. So I would probably, um, and this is like a little bit foreshadowing a future episode. But I'd probably start by making an analysis plan, right? So I'm going to list, like, what are the things I would want to know that people think about me? Like, what are the questions I want to answer? And then for each question, I'm going to think about tackling it separately. Or maybe I'm going to, you know, in the interest of, hey, I only have so much time, although I'm sure I would pull all-nighters on this data set. <laughs> um, in the interest of time, I would probably split it into a couple different buckets. So, like, one bucket is probably how has people's views of me changed over time, Right. I'd probably want some sort of time series analysis of like, does does people's opinions trend upward? And I'd probably want major events. Um, you know, I transitioned 
I'm, I'm trans. So I transitioned. I like so how I you think, whisper. I don't, I don't know why that's a secret. I mean, I'm very <laughs> I was like, yeah, I was like, it's on your Twitter. Yeah. My grandfather knows. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. So I would have known that already because I would have been in this data set. But yeah. <laughs> My grandfather thinking about you. Yeah, thinking about me. So I think there's some interesting analysis there, right? Okay, so there's over time. How is people using me change? I think there's a, how has my transition changed? I think that's just a great, see, that would be a, okay, okay. See, we're workshopping this. There's my blog post, which is how has, how does transitioning change how people think of you? And what I would do is I'd try to anonymously be like, can I make some sort of statements about like, wow, societal norms mean that once I transition, people take me less seriously in meetings or care more my, think more about my appearance or I don't know. But like some sort of thing like that, I'm like, hey, not only now suddenly I've found something that's not only useful to me, but it's also useful to other people, right? And so here I'm like, okay, great. So now I'm going to do, and let's say I do a discontinuity regression. That's Yeah, a discontinuity regression to try and understand how people's views change before and after the, um, the extremely loud cat in my room. No, <laughs> how people's views of me change before and after me transitioned. Um, so I do an analysis. I try but to how do you analysis. tell that? But like, how do you, like when you say, how do their views change, right? You just have, you have a bunch of text data. So like, oh, it's like how, how do you summarize that? I assume well, they well, what did numerical. you think it was in? I thought you, oh. there's some numerical value. Oh, no, no, no. It's, oh. it's, it's all text. It's, it's like, like literally the thoughts recorded. Okay. okay. So it's text. So then what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and do like a natural language processing, maybe some sort of word analysis of like what words show up before and after my transition. Um, or how does, how does the frequency of words change by person? before and after my transition. So like, does the word pretty show up differently before and after, um, before very, and after You're my very transition. pretty before as well, Jacqueline. Oh, thank you, thank you. Um, <laughs> well then, so then oh, your data would show no change in that metric, <laughs> right? But I would do that for each word, try and see how it changed by person and how it changed before and after the transition. And then I would make, I try to make like one showstopper kind of visualization of like, look here, you can really see like maybe it's some sort of like weird before and after bar chart or something of like, you can really see which words show up a lot before and which words show up a lot after. And here is a paragraph or a bunch of paragraphs describing how that is a bigger statement about trans uh, transitioning and what this means for trans people. Um, and that would be my side project. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nice. That actually reminds me of Julia Silgi did a great uh, piece for uh, The Pudding, which was on movie scripts. Uh, what comes after, you know, like we look at the pronouns. So in the script of like the actions, uh, so the piece is called She Giggles, He Gallops. And so she exactly that type of visualization where it's like, okay, these words are six times more likely to be used with she versus these ones six times more likely to be used with he. Yeah. So I try to do the trans version of that. Yes. Trans yeah. Julia Silgi. <laughs> <laughs> so that that's a like, so really nice thing. So you've... Um, so, you know, the process, just to sort of recap what you did there, right? So you started out with this, this data set and you immediately started thinking, okay, what am I interested in? And you're like, okay, like maybe time series stuff over time. And then you thought about major life events and you're like, oh, I know one major life event, like my transition. So like, let me pick that. And then once you started there, you know, you sort of broadened uh, the scope in terms of thinking about like, what would other people be interested in? Because obviously, you know, like in your case, you're probably like, very interested in yourself, but you know, there's uh, some social sciences, re uh, there's lots of social science research in general about like how folks perceive like in a binary gender, like men versus women. 
there's, I think, been a more anecdotal, like qualitative about folks who have transitioned and how they've seen people's behavior change. But in your case, you're like, wow, I have this like really rich data set, uh, you know, and it's just one person. But in this case, like that can be a very powerful thing, getting access to this data that no one has ever had before on people's thoughts. Yeah. And I think you've highlighted a thing I did there that I actually do in most of my projects and we did not talk about on this podcast up until then, which is um, I really do try and at any moment see how I can tease out the idea that it's more interesting to other people and maybe that's the Twitter vanity part of me but I really like to be like oh well okay yeah what what about what I'm doing can I use to help teach other people something and I think you see that in a lot of my you know my blog posts as much as possible I try and make them okay I started to do this but here's what we can all learn from that experience yeah and I think that's uh you know don't underestimate also like um, how many other people may be interested. Like my Pokemon blog post turned out to be really popular because a lot of people wanted to know what types have on their team. Or when I mentioned to a friend, this little Money Diaries app, she was like, I read Money Diaries. Like, I would love that. Um, so I wouldn't say necessarily you have to be like, okay, like, you know, people who aren't interested in Money Diaries app, like, you know, in the, in the series, like, how could I interest them? But like you said, like, okay, like if you can, like broaden the scope a little bit and think about like, well, you know, why would anyone care about this because maybe sometimes what you're going for is showing the skills and building the thing. But if you're showing an analysis, you may be more interested in showing the results and you can think about, okay, like why would other people be besides me care about this result? Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And um, it, there's just a lot to think about when you're doing a project, but also don't let the fact that there's a lot to think about stop you from just choosing a few of those things to think about and yeah. just doing Choose what you one like. Thing. Like, you know, I was thinking like, oh, you also could have done like sentiment analysis, like how that changed. You could have done like the person who was thinking it, right? Like, does that like if, if they're, you know, men, women, non-binary, their age, like, does that change how they view, right? Like, yeah. don't let that paralyze you that there's like, oh my God, there's so many questions I can answer. Like you, I really like that you narrowed it down pretty quickly to one specific question. Yeah. And that's what I was talking about with my like manic kind of uh, energy. It's like, I just get one idea and I latch onto it. And me here, it was... <gasps> I could see transition, like how that affects view. And then I like, oh, I'm so excited. And like that energy fuels me. But um, yeah, it's really, it could be very easy to be like, oh, I could do that. Or I could do this. Or I could do that. Blah, blah, blah. And then never do anything because you just feel like there's so many things and you don't know where to start. Unfortunately, I'm not sure I can get you the state of such action. Ah, you know, I really, I, I really, really tried. Yeah. <laughs> and you just thought initially it was just the numbers. Oh, no, no, no. This is so much more rich. Oh, um, Terabytes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for playing along with that. And I think with that, we can close out the episode. What do you think? Before we end the episode, I just want to make a brief note about this project. I mean, this is all fun game hypothetical, but there's also a really big discussion about ethics here, right? Is it ethical to look at data that has other people's private thoughts and personally identifiable information in it? Most certainly not. Is it ethical to use people's thoughts that they didn't know were going to be used by other people for infographics? Most certainly not. And in fact, you could probably think of eight or 10 other unethical things that we've done in this hypothetical project. And while this project was a fun hypothetical game, if you're listening, please know we do not actually endorse this as a project that you should actually do. Ethics and data science is really serious business and people probably don't take it seriously enough. So uh, we want to take that seriously here. And with that, okay, now let's end the episode. So check us out in our next episode where we talk about uh, looking for data science jobs in chapter five. Uh, thank you for listening. Please tweet at us. Um, I am 
at Sky Tetra, S-K-Y-E-T-E-T-R-A. I am Robinson underscore E-S on Twitter. Um, or you can share with us on LinkedIn. Uh, we'd love to hear your opinions of the show, feedback, or if you have questions, um, and use the hashtag DataSciCareer. That's Data SCI Career. Again, you can buy a copy of our book at bestbook.cool and use the code BUILDBOOK40%. That's 40% symbol for 40% off. Our theme song is by the extremely funny Matt Bouchelle. And thanks to our publisher Manning for helping our book exist. And we'll also start with this episode uh, giving one person who tweets at us, messages us on LinkedIn, so on and so forth, a free ebook copy. So if you're interested in that, definitely uh, reach out, share what you think of the show, and may your columns have no missing data. <laughs>